This is Power Athlete Radio. With your host, Denny Cage, Professor Booty, and the Luke Summers. And now, toes forward, hips locked, shoulders set, and retract those scapulas. It's time for some knowledge bombs. Radio. This week, we're bringing you one of the best and most informative episodes to date. The crew welcomes Dr. Tim Hewitt of Ohio State University and the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Tim is a captivating voice for ongoing epidemiological studies being done to predict and prevent ACL injuries. Tim walks us through his 20-year history in the study of the anterior cruciate ligament. He explains how the rumors are true. ACL injuries are six times more likely to occur in females than males, but the scientific reasons for this may surprise you. Here's a hint. It has little to do with the Q angle or hip-to-knee ratio. After our discussion of risk factors and the most commonly affected demographic, Dr. Tim elaborates on the best forms of injury prevention. Training in various planes of motion is just one of the suggested means to confront this potentially debilitating injury. How do you get your sport coaches and athletes on board with the training it takes to keep teams safe? We asked Dr. Hewitt that very question, and he responds with an NBA story that would make any coach shake their head in disgust, and any athlete's knees ache, for that matter. For every meandering question we had, Dr. Hewitt managed to provide a concise and comprehensive answer, something we're not exactly used to here at Power Athlete HQ. Are you laid up with an ACL tear with nothing to do? You need to listen to this episode. Now here's the show, episode 104. What's happening, Power Athlete Nation? Welcome to the Premier Podcast in Strength and Conditioning, Power Athlete Radio. I'm excited about this one. I'm joined with the Power Athlete coaches, John, Luke, Tex, and Callie, and today our guest is Dr. Tim Hewitt from Ohio State University. Dr. Hewitt, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Denny. Thank you. <laughs> Do you prefer Dr. Hewitt or Tim? Tim will work just as well. Awesome. Awesome. I'm excited to talk to you, man, because uh, from what I understand, you're kind of an expert in female ACL injuries. Yes, yeah, some say that. And the healthy ones. I was going to say exactly. <laughs> Only the ones that haven't had an ACL injury. Exactly. <laughs> I always love the doctors that are great at pointing out ACLs, but yet they don't tell anybody because it would mess up their study. They're yeah. Like, uh, I observed that you were going to tear your ACL, and you're like, well, you know, that would have been useful information before I tore my ACL. <laughs> yeah, it can be bad for some orthopedic surgeon's business. Yeah, yeah. you got to hustle. Mm-hmm. Well, here's the thing, like. I, uh, I I switched gyms like a couple months ago, so I have my hands on um, like a whole new group of athletes, mm-hmm. and I'd say the majority of these women are constantly demonstrating like the valgus knee in, in their jump roping, their box jumping. Uh, last night it was like push jerk, the dip and drive, and mm-hmm. one one athlete was, uh, I'd say she was a young lady like in her early 20s. Just, Did you her hands on her? 
<laughs> I had to put my hands on her hips. You know, I mean, that's pretty standard to when teach you do, her like that. <laughs> right, you're not teaching her to play pool. Is, you know, this uh, is a PG-13. Hands on the okay. hips kind of reinforce her to to kind of sit in her hamstrings more. I had her, like, step up on a maybe a 16-inch box and just kind of jump off of it and land kind of into her hamstrings, you know, keeping her knees over her ankles. And even that was challenging for her. Mm-hmm. And I had her do that for like 20 minutes until she could demonstrate um, landing, uh, you know, effectively like that and not landing with her knees this like, you know, valgus. And right. I, from doing some research with you, um, you had come up with uh, like what you're calling like your P4 ACL assessment. Right. Is that correct? That is correct. So we I'm did. just kind of curious to see like when, what you've kind of come across to uh, to kind of like, you know, pre, pre, uh, what do we want to call it? like prehab that, you know, just to kind of build like a good movement pattern. Right. So, so basically what we've been doing, I've been involved in this about 22 years now, actually. And we started out in, I'm from the Southwest Ohio. Um, I'm actually a lifelong Ojai Tucky and I was, Born in Ohio, we always had a farm in Kentucky. Now I have a farm in Kentucky, and I uh, or I live in Kentucky, and I have a farm in Ohio. And we had um, out in a, a area called Mason, Ohio. We were covering the the group that I was with at the time. This was in the early '90s. We were covering. Uh, uh, it was called Soccer World. It was a big soccer facility, brand new, and they had a bunch of outside grass fields and they had a bunch of inside turf fields and we started uh, conducting studies the idea that we had was at that time we thought astroturf the old type of astroturf was causing more ACL injuries than was uh, grass that was the hypothesis we were going into with the study well they had leagues they were co-ed leagues and you had to have on your team half guys and, and half girls and you the, everyone played the entire hour they limited to exactly an hour and what was nice about this epidemiologic study is we we not only knew exactly what the injury outcome was how many ACLs we had but we had more importantly the denominator of that equation which is how much exposure did each athlete have and when we looked at the data there was no difference between the turf field and the grass field, which was a surprise to us. It, it didn't, you know, answer the, the, it wasn't the answer we were expecting. And then when I looked at the data, basically what it shows was when you looked exactly per exposure, the women were 6.2 times more likely to tear their ACL than the men. And that's, that's what started me down this path 22 years ago that I've continued down to now. And, and, there's there's several things here. The first we wanted to get at was, well, why are these girls and women more at risk? And these studies have been redone. Uh, we put this first study out there, but what it's been what's been shown is, depending on the sport, girls and women are sometimes somewhere between two and ten times more likely to rupture their ACL than than men playing the same sport per exposure. When you look at the uh, amount they're exposed to a uh, a high-risk sport, and these these high-risk sports in the U.S. are 
are primarily basketball, soccer, and volleyball. And so what we've been doing for the last, I've been funded by the NIH now for a couple decades looking at how does this problem arise? How do we identify athletes that are at relatively increased risk of tearing their ACLs? And then what can we do in that population to reduce relative risk? And, and we've, we've had a lot of NIH funding over the past couple decades to figure these things out. And one thing we did figure out is exactly what you're saying. And again, this wasn't our expectation was going to be, again, it was directly against our hypothesis. We thought it was going to be that girls landed, girls and women landed with straighter knees than men did, and that's what caused them to tear their ACL. Again, of course, just like our turf study, we were absolutely wrong. That that wasn't the case. It's it's not that they land with straighter knees. What they do is their hips and their knees knees cave inward as they land. And what we showed, what we did is we've done several studies, but one, for example, is where my old farm in Kentucky was before I moved up to Ohio State and, and got a farm up here in central Ohio, is, is Boone County, Kentucky. That's where uh, the greater Cincinnati uh, airport is, is located in Boone County, Kentucky. And we've been studying this entire county school system for almost 15 years. And we've been following all those kids, 6th through 12th grade, that primarily play the sports of basketball and soccer, both boys and girls. And then we also follow girls in volleyball, which is a sport down there that has ACL injuries. And basically what we showed in a very large cohort of kids, an entire county school system, is that those girls that allowed their hips and their knees to collapse inward as they landed and then took off again would in what we call our DVJ test, which is a drop vertical jump. It's 31 centimeter, a foot high box. The reason is I used to grab plastic milk cartons out, take them out you know, at the schools. I'd go to the cafeteria. I know those would be there. And then I'd just have them drop down in the gym. And I would measure with just a camcorder how much collapse there was at the hip and the knee. And basically what we showed is those girls that did that had about with 80% sensitivity and specificity, that's a pretty good prediction level and a very high positive prediction value. Those were the kids that went on. If they showed that dynamic, they had a significantly higher risk of tearing their ACL. And girls that didn't do that during landing had a relatively low risk of tearing their ACL. <clears throat> so uh, I've read a lot of your research, Doc, and then this is what you're describing sounds to me like ligament dominance uh, that you yeah. labeled. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so go ahead. So go ahead. No, you go ahead. So, so basically, um, you're exactly right. What we term that, what we've done over time, again, 20 years of studying this, is, is in looking at these large populations, is we've picked out four what I term neuromuscular imbalances that, First of all, identify kids at relative risk. Second of all, we can tailor training programs to address and actually reduce these neuromuscular imbalances that we observe. And then we can also show that in the not only in the lab or, or in the gym, but we can use those same neuromuscular training techniques 
and drop risk on the field by 50 to 60 or actually 50 to 70 percent by between half and two-thirds and the first imbalance that you point out is what we call ligament dominance and what I mean by that is instead of being muscle dominant instead of activating that musculature especially your core and your posterior chain musculature especially hip and glutes are crucial so for multiple reasons girls and women even if they have you know girls and women they have the glutes they're there I mean sure strengthening is a good thing but the muscle is there they just don't activate it enough so they're they're instead of being muscle dominant instead of using their glutes and hammies and core musculature to absorb and dissipate force when they hit the ground instead they allow that force to go directly to their joint and to their ligament and that that force applied to the ligament very rapidly that's high impulse is what tears ligaments what's it's what tears ACLs hey doc uh, how big a player is the you know obviously the female anatomy having wider hips for childbirth and then obviously girls being naturally not meat um, I just recently worked with a bunch of girl athletes and uh, the girls that were slightly not meat wider hips uh, had much difficult time actually driving their knees out and going for a more straightforward position just the fire. And then I had two other girls that were actually slightly, you know, straight legged, slightly bow legged, that had actually no problem activating their glutes and keeping their knee out. So I wonder if, um, you know, the wider hip of the female athlete being a major contributor to, you know, what uh, what people refer to as phantom gluteamnesia or glute amnesia. Yeah, so that again, a lot of surgeons strongly believe that, that this this Q angle or the quadriceps angle, or if you look at the front of the hips at the anterior superior iliac spine, that's where you start the Q angle, and then you go to center of the knee joint, and then you go to where the patellar tendon intersects at the tibial tubercle on the shin. That's, that's your Q angle or quadriceps angle. It's the angle of the mechanism of extension of the knee joint. And basically, uh, the surgeons have said for decades that's the reason that that females tear their ACLs more than males do. And there there have actually been two studies, uh, one based in basketball out of Canada, and then a military study based out of West Point that showed a relationship between that that Q angle and risk of tearing the ACL. But there have been Oh, at least 20 studies that that show that is not directly related and most of our studies it, it's it's a fallacy to say women have wider hips so the 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 really good anthropologists what they show is that women have differently shaped hips than you know girls and then and and women than boys and men do if you normalize per the size of the person the width of the hip is about the same no, it is correct that women do have a greater knock-kneed angle, that greater Q angle, but that's a relatively small difference. It's only about a degree to an, a degree and a half greater. So in our models, and, and at least 20 other different studies show that that quadriceps angle or the relative width of the hip are not the predictors. What are the predictors? is the dynamic cave-in of the hip and knee and again that that's the good news because 
you can't do a lot about anatomic structure. I mean, e even though it may present its challenges in training, the good news is there's a lot we can do about dynamic cave-in, this dynamic valgus, because the, the, the girls that are actually that, that are squared up and aren't real sort of statically anatomically high Q angle, they have they have more room to cave in and those that do that have significantly greater risk and it gives us an approach and it gives us tools to use to reduce risk. Yeah, so that, I mean, let me ask a question. That is good news uh, in terms of sort of like um, clarifying maybe an over-exaggerated uh, myth about about women being having a wider set of hips that causes, um, you know, more ACL injuries. But my question is, if if really we, we aren't that different proportioned, I mean, we're talking about several degrees in that Q angle, what is causing the neuromuscular imbalances then? If you know, because to me it seemed like a chicken egg almost situation. Maybe based on body position and anthropomorphically, we we have these these neuromuscular imbalances. But if it, if that's not a major player, then what is it that causes women to sort of deactivate or, or not have that awareness when they are jumping off or stepping off of that 31 inch uh, 31 centimeter box? And and so that's we that's what we've been answering over the last oh I'd say it's more than 12 years ago with these with these NIH R01 grants that that we've been uh, funded with and and that that's the major question why is that and basically it it comes down to this so we've been out in this entire county school system we've been tracking kids from sixth all the way through twelfth grade so we cover middle school and high school the reason we did that across that entire span is when you look at boys and girls prior to maturation prior to adolescence there isn't a difference in relative ACL risk so we posited that well this must have something to do with maturation so what you see is and I'll say this in sort of more scientific terms and then I'll try to to make it a, a, a good lay based analogy of how to think about the biomechanics of this so both boys and girls at the time when they hit puberty they go through a very rapid growth spurt of their body their body gets very much larger longer the long bones so the the tibia and femur the the bones on either side of the knee joint are the longest most massive bones in the body and they grow rapidly from their ends with in both boys and girls and this this happens in girls about a year and a half to two years earlier in development or early in age than it than than it does in boys and what happens is they so if you think about it in terms of a car analogy, they um, both boys and girls have a relatively small chassis, and then they get a big chassis. The, the, the machine gets much larger. Well, what happens very soon after the growth spurt in boys is they get, and, and you guys as strength coach all, all know this, they get a big power spurt. This mainly comes from natural testosterone. And what happens is they get, they're, they're much more powerful than they were before. So even though their body is bigger, even though their chassis is larger, 
their engine is actually much more powerful relative to the size of the machine. And so, so for example, if you do studies, and we've done these studies longitudinally, we've done them in the same kids, we've done them in big cross-sectional samples, basically if you have boys, even though boys are getting bigger, heavier, longer, they are more powerful. So a great, very reliable measure of whole body power, as you guys know, is a vertical jump. Guys go up as they get larger and their, their mass gets greater, they can displace their mass higher off the ground. Girls stay pretty much exactly the same. So even though the girl gets the bigger machine, she has relatively the same amount of power. So let's think about it in terms of cars. So say they go from a, a little Toyota Prius, they both start out with a Toyota Prius sized chassis or machine and they both have a Prius sized motor then what happens is they graduate and they get a Cadillac both boys and girls get a big Cadillac chassis or Cadillac machine now what happens in boys is though they get a Cadillac they get a high-end Porsche engine to run that Cadillac so per the size of the machine they're significantly more powerful girls stay what they do is they go from a Prius to a Cadillac machine and end up with somewhere between say a Prius and a Chevy engine so they've got this bigger machine but they've got less motor to control it and that's where we see and we we just published a paper it, it should come out any day now that summarizes this 15 years worth of work that that shows this differential and it happens right at peak height velocity, right when these kids are maxing out is where all the loads and all the knee collapse and hip collapse occur in girls and boys you get that during that adolescent growth spurt you have that kind of awkward phase in boys I'm sure as strength coaches you guys see it too but then as they quickly within within a few months say six months maximum they get this big power spurt they don't have that hip and knee collapse and it comes back down to baseline girls just keep going up that ligament dominance those neuromuscular imbalances just keep increasing as they mature so doc basically what you're telling us is that there's a massive case and probably you know you've found this too for strength training girls before puberty that actually uh, you know get, getting them in teaching them the movement patterns getting them I mean uh, there was a pretty extensive study I got forwarded years ago that was uh, uh, I think um, uh, Dr. Romanov uh, forwarded it to me where they had uh, uh, you know, a massive amount of kids in Russia that were exposed to strength training pre-puberty. And then um, uh, once puberty hit, they were thrown into a, a bigger group of kids that were not exposed to strength training. And the kids that had been boys and girls exposed to strength training pre-puberty gained strength and uh, you know, speed, power, all these other key factors at almost twice the rate of the other kids. We, and, we think okay, that, yeah, and, and a friend of mine... Uh, with the two friends of mine, one one out in New Jersey, Avery Fagenbaum. I don't know if you're aware of Fagenbaum's work, but another colleague of mine in Cincinnati, Greg Meyer, we did a study together in, in a huge cohort of uh, kids in New Jersey in a in a big inner city school system, and basically showed that what's what's most important is that you train throughout that growth spurt. 
Sure. Because then those those imbalances are not going to to come about. You're going to have the coaching, and you know where where girls are missing out, where they're where they're not recruiting their their glutes, or if they have uh, certain weak muscle groups. The key is that te teaching them recru these recruitment patterns as they grow so that they don't develop these imbalances. And that's exactly, I mean, that's the nature of prehab. Before that imbalance occurs, you make sure that that doesn't occur because what happens is when they call me in, when they call the ACL prevention guy is the, the peak occurs in 16-year-old girls. That's when the most ACLs occur in girls. And, and wow. guys, it's later. It's around age 20. But girls, it happens, you know, when girls are sophomores and juniors in high school where they're all, you know, the most are playing high-risk sports like basketball, soccer, and volleyball. That's where the peak happens. And that's when they call me because what they have is on their basketball team, I, Galesburg, Illinois, four kids four starters on their high school basketball team, sophomores and juniors, rupture their ACLs. That, I mean, we can do something about that. We can alter their neuromuscular profile, but really for prevention, we, we got there about five years too late. I mean, we, we well, need to don't get you think, don't, don't you think that's kind of a, like a changing of the times a little bit? I mean, we've, we've run into this pretty dramatically in the last, I mean, so, I mean, just to tell you, I tore my ACL when I was 20, so uh, I'm, I, I laughed when you said that for guys. Yeah. I was like, man, that was exactly at 20 when I tore mine. But um, what we've seen is this kind of huge change in, uh, in mindset. You know, when I started lifting weights in, you know, early 90s, you know, girls didn't lift weights. There was this idea where you don't want to get big and bulky, and now within the last five to seven years, we've seen this change where now you see girls doing performance training. You show mm -hmm. up to gyms, we show up to our seminars, I mean, it's a huge uh, cross-section of athletes, but a lot of them are female athletes and are starting to see the benefit of strength training. The other key thing that we've seen, and I always wonder, contributing-wise, in terms of diet, where it was, you know, the traditional female diet up until, you know, probably maybe five or seven years ago was this high-carb, low-protein, low-fat, low-fat bullshit. Now we're seeing girls actually eating more protein, which, you know, uh, protein synthesis, more muscle, more strength, and um, I, I just wonder if all these are contributing factors. It's maybe kind of a shift, and maybe we can start getting at these, uh, you know, athletes younger and putting them through, uh, you know, both intelligent and safe and comprehensive uh, strength training program that builds patterns, like you said, and you know, smart diet, good training, and you kind of take that and you can basically ride it through that injury prevention. It's uh, most of the people that we've seen that have come to us uh, really are so far behind the curve just from the fact that people are just don't know what to do. You have to keep in mind that girls, we're only a couple generations out. We're only about, it was in 1972 that they enacted Title IX, and that's where where, where female participation in, in sports skyrocketed, skyrocketed. Prior to that, there weren't college scholarships. It didn't, uh, girls were not driven into sport the way they are. And, and again, we're only talking 40 years ago. That's only two generations. And so there was nothing going on there. We weren't, we weren't preparing girls for sport. And then what did we do when we said, oh, geez, th these kids can get full rides, full rides even easier than guys can. What did the coaches do? They went out into the high school hallway or or rarely even the junior high school hallway, they looked for that kid who just went through the growth spurt, tallest head in the, in the hall, and said, you're going to be my, my forward. And 
these these kids weren't prepared to do that and then they expect them to play like Michael Jordan you know most of these coaches had been coaching guys for for decades and they expect them to play the same plays in the same way as these very high level male players without any preparation and we we were basically asking for it these these kids were not prepared to move in ways that loaded their joints like they do and then then what we did is just straight performance training as you say without a lot of thinking behind it and sure. then what you get these kids jumping higher but landing in really bad positioning not not using the biggest strongest muscles in their body to to dissipate those forces acting on their body and then we had this huge explosion I, I saw it in my career you know I Dr. Go Dino, ahead. For, for me it was uh, you know part of the reason why I started this deal was um, uh, you know as a uh, you know to just my history I played uh, you know, high school and then went on and played at uh, Cal Berkeley on a scholarship and then drafted and played 10 years in the NFL and you know, uh, was a starter my whole career and saw this. And when I got out, people asked me about training. And my first comment is, uh, you can't look at what I did to get where you want to go because, one, you're not. Two, I'm in that very, very small percentage of people uh, having got to the NFL and playing at this level for as long as I did. So you have to take your path. And part of the reason why I started this was that when people asked me specifically, hey, what did you do for your training? I want to do that. And I was like, no, no, let me show you where you need to start having made all these mistakes. And so a big part of our deal is, I don't, you don't have to make the mistakes that I made to get where you want to go. So let me hyperdrive that and offer you a really good progression about here's day one, this is day 100, this is day you know five, six years down the road. And the thing which uh, you're running into, and I've seen this so many times, is people start using sport performance training with young female athletes early on, and usually they take their cue from something like football or some uh, – you know, performance training place like uh, Athletes Performance for Stegen or a lot of these other guys were, you know, I trained out there and I'd watched them bring in different girls into these things. And I remember being like, how about just teaching them how to do a basic barbell back squat before you start trying to do bird max and change your direction and single leg hops and all these dynamic plyo movements. When just watching them, you know, do unilateral movements, I'm like, dude, you've never developed strength in a bilateral hip hinge. How are you going to ask these people to do this in a single leg movement? So that was kind of my divergence and why I started this whole deal all these years ago was, Let's offer smart programming that helps people to take progression because you can't look at what the best people in the world are doing. If you're going to do that, you're not going to get where you need to go. You're right. The key to this is good basic body mechanics in positions that activate the heavy, the the dense, strong musculature. Because again, many of these, it's not it's not that they don't have enough muscle. We're we're rarely contracting. Even someone who's relatively thin is not, during a sport like basketball or soccer, maxing out the capacity of their muscle. It's all about muscle recruitment. And what, where that muscle recruitment occurs is through good biomechanics. Getting up on the ball of your foot with, with your knees over your ankles and your chest over your knees and ready to react in all planes, you, you know, especially up on the ball of your foot, sitting back, where you have to turn on your hammies, you have to turn on your glutes, and uh, I mean, let's face it, a 13, 14, 15-year-old girl who's just gone through a growth spurt does not move in that way. We have to teach them to move in that way. So, Doc, let me ask you a question about when you were talking about um, that maturation phase and, and you were 
uh, creating sort of that metaphor of metaphor of the vehicles. Um, oh, Doc, we got to raise your IQ on cars a little bit. There was, uh, <laughs> I, I got to help you with the analogy. You were killing me on the analogies. So I'll talk to you about that. <laughs> There's a Cadillac CTSV that has a turbo or a supercharger on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> um, but I, I had a, I had a question. I mean, we know that when you take well, the so let me try to let me try to ask this in the best way possible. So we know that um, we can see this this neuromuscular imbalance at that age because of those maturation kind of phases that are occurring. Um, and we can definitely see it in sort of that larger musculature, that larger, we have the femur, the tinfib, and so it's very apparent. Um, but how can you also, can you compare that, what's occurring there um, neuromuscularly? Can you, can you sort of create an argument for that, um, that lacks in, I guess, recruitment in another part of the body, for instance? Can you make that argument for, with, with using you know, uh, some sort of upper body movement as well, like some sort of upper body stability type situation. Does that make sense to either yes. to either confirm mm -hmm. or deny that that's really what's going on? Yes. So that's that's what we did in the next series of studies, and we actually won the the top award from the AOSSM, which is the American Orthopedic Society for Sports Medicine. Uh, it's in, it's it, it's in lovely Orlando in uh, in in July is where we're picking up this award and basically this is what we did is after in in Boone County in in what we we were screening about 650 kids every year trying to figure out this data and then what we did after that is the right thing we took what we found out and we developed a a protocol where we said hey what if we just teach good core control? What if that's all we did? And then we compared that to a training regimen where we just did forward single plane speed training. So what we did is we did a randomized control trial. Everybody got the same equipment. Nobody was told what, what kind of training they got or what it was designed to do. So all we did is core training in one group and all we did was straight ahead speed training in the other group and what we showed was the core training alone decreased that in the lab decreased that relative hip and knee collapse on the field which is the whereas the speed training did not and it it bore out on the injury side as well so we did that exact study you just asked me about and that's mm -hmm. going to be published in the American Journal of Sports Medicine either later this year or early next. What did you do for the core work? Was it uh, just basic like uh, you know leg raises, you know, Was it isometric? We 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 started we started out very basic, very isometric and progressed it through five phases and I I could send you the PDF of that study. We published that in Journal of Strength Conditioning Research. And basically what we did is progress it over, over time. And the more detailed one is in clinics and sports medicine. We started, it was very phased, and, and they only progressed it when they were able to, when they were able to do the straight static core, then they progressed to more dynamic uh, two-footed movements, then they to more dynamic single hopping movements. And, and so it was very much progressed in that manner. Yeah, that'd be great if you could send it to us. I'd love to see it. Sure, Doc, I'm curious. Yeah. Um, you, you've listed other uh, kind of mechanisms for injury. So you had ligament, you had quad. 
Uh, asymmetry quad dominance is a trunk. problem. Leg, leg to leg asymmetry is a problem. Trunk, the trunk being out of control, the core mm -hmm. being without control. Those are all part of the problem or these neuromuscular imbalances that lead to greater risk. Yeah, just uh, kind of piecing and I, I built together just some movements based off of what we talk about. We always talk about is developing a posterior dominant athlete. Yes, uh, and, absolutely. And after training kind of that path of that hamstring, then we challenge through the frontal plane and the transverse plane through separating your shoulders from your hips. So your ability to still load your hamstring and knee straight up, but then your shoulders are separated. So my, uh, I'm sorry, just uh, my question then is kind of, can you talk about the hamstring action and expectation uh, that, that you'd be looking for when the body's moving through all those planes of motion that we see on the field? Yeah, so, so first of all, you're exactly right. So sport, uh, sports movement happens in three dimensions, in all three planes. ACL injuries, now believe it or not, when I got into this field 20 years ago, and I, I still have these national and international debates, primarily with surgeons who say, the only way the ACL tears is in one plane. It's when the tibia or the shin bone comes forward relative to the femur or the thigh bone. That's absolutely wrong. That, and, and again, in a very simple sense, well, that happens. But what happens is, just like sport, just like human movement, the injury occurs in all three planes of motion simultaneously. So it, it's, it's complex, but what, what happens is the, the lateral part, the, the side of your tibia, your shin bone, where your fibula is, it pulls forward as the knee collapses in and the tibia rotates in, and that happens all together. That's why we have to prepare these athletes in all three planes of motion. So what happens with when you're quadriceps dominant, which many, many, if not most girls are, what they tend to do is to stabilize their knee joint when they're landing or cut, you know, landing from a basketball rebound or cutting on a soccer field. They primarily activate the quad, that big muscle on the front of their thigh. And again, this is this is because they they feel like that it, it, to them feels like that stabilizes the joint. Now that does the quadriceps when your knee's relatively straight and you activate it, it pulls the knee joint together. It compresses the knee joint. The problem with that is is multifactorial though because when you compress the knee joint together using the quad, it actually causes the, the lateral side of the tibia to come forward, to rotate inward and buckle in, which is the ACL injury mechanism. That's mm -hmm. when, you, when you're loading that quad without loading your hamstrings, that's exactly what happens and that's what you see in these girls. Now on the flip side, if you get them up on the balls of your feet and you make them sit their butt back and you activate hammies and glutes, the hammies are much, much better at protecting the ACL than the quad is. The quad is actually what's called an ACL antagonist. When you contract your quad on a relatively straight knee, it actually pulls the tibia forward and causes it to rotate in. The ACL is resisting those three motions of that buckling in and pulling forward. Whereas the hammies do exactly the opposite. They're an agonist, a helper of the ACL. 
So you've got these big muscles on the back of your thighs that when you activate them, it pulls, they, the, especially the biceps femoris, pull the tibia back and rotate it out and don't allow that inward collapse. So they're taking strain directly off of the ACL. That's why it's so crucial to activate those hammies. Plus, they've got tendons on either side of the joint. If you're quad dominant and you're primarily activating that quad muscle, it's just got a single tendon across the front of the joint. It can't mm -hmm. control that inward collapse or inward rotation, whereas Whereas the hamstrings, when you're activating them, they actually pull the tibia back, they pull it away from the center, and they pull it rotated outwards. So they're not only biomechanically do they do they absorb that force from the ground, but they're also taking stress off in all three planes simultaneously. And Doc, you're, you're speaking our language. We're all strength coaches here, and then definitely investing. Some of us have had ACL injuries or other hamstring or foot injuries, just kind of uh, and knee. But uh, when you're approaching parents, when you're approaching sport coaches, I know you you've spoken in front of the NBA kind of execs. How do you take this approach to this problem? Yeah, it's interesting. So. I basically go with a top-down, bottom-up approach, and I'll talk a little bit about that. So the NBA, I don't know how well you guys are aware, but since the lockout, so these guys were basically locked out for about 18 months from their strength coaches. There was a lot of issues. Same thing happened in the NFL. After the lockout in the NFL, injury went up. Total numbers ballooned, and we'd been tracking that, and we published a paper on that. And basically, a, a reporter asked me, hey, this just happened in the NFL. Do you think something like this could happen in the NBA? Well, me being a, a former meathead, sometimes not the smartest guy or the most careful guy with my language, I say to this reporter, well, if given this and even though I qualified that, yeah, it could happen in the NBA too. Well... In the 18 months following the lockout, 13 starting point guards popped their ACLs in the NBA. Now, this was a obviously a, an enormous problem. These guys, on average, a starting point guard in the NBA is making between 12 and 15 million dollars a year, and guys like Derrick Rose are making 21 million dollars a year. With the new TV contract, they're saying these salaries are going to bump up 20, 30. 50%. So anyway, that that's a to the NBA, that's in a in 18 months, that's over a 200 million dollar loss. So one of the physicians, the physician that was working with Derrick Rose is a friend of mine and he called me up. He said, "You know, Hewitt, I don't know how the hell you came up with that statement of predicting this, but it, you know, it, I don't know you, whether you got a crystal ball or what, but you need to come talk to the NBA team physicians. So what happened was I spoke with the NBA team physicians about a year and a half ago at the, uh, at the All-Star game down in Houston, and I think they were awestruck in many ways by, hey, man, this is a huge problem. Hey, number two, uh, this is this is predictable in, in some ways. And number three, there are actually interventions or way to drop relative risk. 
No, of course, when you're talking about NBA players, they have huge risk factors. This all relates to things like body size. The bigger your body is, the greater risk you have. BMI, the heavier your mass, the greater. You know, it's, it's simple physics. Uh, in this case, the bigger you are, the harder you fall is a, is a fact. And, and so they have all these risk factors. I don't think they realized how modifiable many of these risk factors are and that there are interventions out there that have been shown to reduce risk by half and two-thirds. And then I followed up and, and met with the, the physical therapists and athletic trainers at the Combine in Chicago that following May. And, and since that time, there's still a matter of convincing people because as much data as you show them, as many randomized controlled trials, there's, there's always the doubters. And so what, what you really have to do is you have to go in and I start at the top and I work with, for example, a lot of people are calling me, but if they haven't had four out of their five starters on their girls basketball team tear their ACL, uh, they, they'll say, well, this isn't a problem for us. So the first thing you have to do is educate. It is a problem. ACL injuries are the number one reason for time loss in sport, especially sports like soccer, basketball. It's the number one reason for time loss in both the NBA and the NFL. It is a huge problem. We can screen for it and figure out which players are at relatively higher risk. You Knowing sports like the NBA and NFL Obviously, there are political and legal and lots of other ramifications to that. But then also, if you can isolate out these imbalances and you can target these imbalances with neuromuscular training that has been shown to reduce the imbalances in the lab or in the gym and reduce risk out onto the court and on the field, it's really something you need to do. And at that high level, so you have to get the school superintendent, the athletic director, and those athletic directors who say, well, say they're, they're at the middle school or junior high school level, they haven't hit that big rash of ACL injuries that occurs in 16-year-olds. What you say is, okay, okay, athletic director, or, or hey, coach, I know that you're one of the most uh, hardest worked, you know, hours-wise, lowest paid people on the planet, but if I not only can make your kids safer, but these junior high school girls are at such relatively low performance level, I mean, you guys all know this, if I take a high school boy who's got that testosterone spurt and I train him for eight weeks over the summer, if I'm lucky, I'm going to get a 5 to 10% boost over that time compared to background, compared to what he's getting. In a girl the same age or at the same developmental stage, the changes are not 5 to 10%. They're 50, 100%. So you're getting huge. So what I'm telling these guys is, okay, AD, even if you haven't had a rash of ACL injuries because you're at, at middle school or junior high school, I can increase the level of athleticism in your girls' sports like basketball and soccer one, two, three levels. And then they get on board. So you have to get the, you have to get the decision makers on board but that's not the complete story. Mm -hmm. Then you have to have somebody at the grassroots involved because the, obviously the, the AD or the superintendent isn't going to train these kids. So what you you normally need to do is find a champion, and that's very often for us. It's an assistant coach who's had a, one or two ACL injuries, who knows how, how problematic, who knows how 
devastating one or and and the, the double injured ACL, the bilateral ACL people, they they're really highly motivated so that their kids don't have an injury. Or you have a a teacher or an athletic trainer or a therapist who works with a team who's who's really motivated to help. And then you kind of meet in the middle. You get the you get the top brass on board. You get the grassroots people on board, and then you meet in the middle, and then you make a big difference. So, in in some some of your studies, I just read that um, like single leg loop activities, mm -hmm. we have people who are right side dominant, left side dominant because of their sport, whether it's tennis, uh, baseball. So it was just interesting to read that you could balance yourself out just by doing a lot of single leg stuff. So could you kind of talk about those feedback loops? Um, yeah, discussed so in the study. So side-to-side -side asymmetry in neuromuscular control and strength and speed, these are asymmetries are some of our best predictors for future injury risk. And when you, if you think about that, in very, very high-level athletes, we're actually creating asymmetry. So whether that be a, a baseball pitcher or a tennis player, you know, in, in baseball pitchers, you're actually creating a situation where the the uh, you they have less internal rotation of their shoulder and more external rotation from throwing the ball. They actually have a twist in their humerus and their upper arm. What we're doing with sport, especially single sport athletes that start very early that ch actually change their body with training, is we're creating greater injury risk. So what we need to do and think about is do a lot of training that creates bilateral symmetry, especially in high-level athletes or, or any athlete, because the more asymmetric you are, sooner or later, your one side is going to get hit with more load than it's used to, the side that's sort of non-preferred, or just as in a pro professional baseball pitcher, yeah, they're, they're all externally rotated, and the risk of an ulnar collateral ligament injury or rotator cuff tear are astronomical in a professional pitcher versus the average population. What we've demonstrated is if you do this single loop training, if you do a lot of side to side, at the same time giving feedback and giving the athlete, okay, you're very asymmetric or you're becoming more symmetric and you work them individually, you can bring them closer together. And that is, that is a key to a lot that we do is first you show them the complete movement, you break it down by side, and you keep working until you you bring them closer and closer to symmetry while giving feedback. The more symmetry you create, the more you decrease their relative risk of an injury. And I've read some some separate studies. I'll I'll have to pull it up for you. I forget who the author was, but it was for men's lacrosse. And because of the cross, they had a higher risk of ACL injury because their arms couldn't follow through or they're stopping themselves short. Because of the stick, have you you have any knowledge? Or anything, anything that any kind of movement that creates an a side to side asymmetry of neuromuscular control is gonna create greater risk. Yes, and that that makes sense. So when you're talking, Doc, this is Luke from Power Athlete. Um, Hi, Luke. As, as you're increasing risk, 
and maybe this this is probably going to be situational, but is there magnitude to that increase of risk? Uh, if it's a marginal increase of risk, but your ability to outperform your opposition, like, you know, that, that of course is going to be, I guess, your own training or coaching philosophy. Yeah, working a right-handed stick and being right-handed right dominant mm -hmm. will make me a more dominant player or left-handed versus an asymmetrical approach. But I don't know, I guess in terms of some of these sports, which in order of most to least is the most significant in terms of magnitude in imbalance. Yeah, I don't know that I don't know that we have the data to be able to answer that question, but I I would say still the more symmetry, if you can be a great player with a stick on both sides, you're gonna be a better performing player and you're gonna be a safer player. Mm -hmm. So I think overall that's where we have to go with it. Thank you. Mm, you're more than welcome. Wow. Well, um, Dr. Hewitt, amazing, amazing podcast thus far. I mean, um, I, I apologize earlier. We thought we had you, uh, we thought we had muted our microphone, and I don't mind telling the listeners, but we muted purposely to talk about how awesome this conversation was going. So we weren't trying to talk over you, but um, but John and I were just kind of like, this is fantastic. Like, just, just kind of um, to... Uh, piggyback on what Tex was saying earlier, so much of what you're indicating through your studies and and you're just basically giving a, a much more credible voice to everything that we do in, in our training program, you know, from everything from when you're talking about training trunk to, for instance, uh, you described a, a sports stance, an athletic stance, and we call that the universal athletic position, and so these are all things that are um, woven into our, our training protocol that really, really are meant to do exactly what you're talking about, which is injury prevention, and not only that, uh, make you a faster athlete, make you uh, enable you to change direction and do things, um, you know, with with athleticism, regardless of your arena of sport. Yeah, and that's I, that's I'm the good sorry. news in all this. Really, is that the same thing? If if you're training correctly to make an athlete a better athlete, you're going to make them a safer athlete too. Right. It, it, mm -hmm. That, that's the key to this, and that's that's what you have to sell people. If if they're if they're not willing to do injury prevention, like I was talking about the the coach or the athletic director that hasn't had a huge rash of ACL injuries, I can tell you flat out, you get to junior high school or high school age girls, and you do good basic biomechanics training with these kids, they're gonna be more athletic flat out. Mm -hmm. And Doc, I, I got to deal with a lot of uh, demanding sport coaches. My first year at college level, I had three girls tear their ACL on the lacrosse team. So mm -hmm. at that point, it was I need to arm myself with information, and that uh, kind of sent me down this kind of ACL. I wouldn't call it an obsession. Kelly make fun of me, but uh, just the <laughs> path to demand perfection of movement in order to protect yeah. yourself. So you're absolutely pretty, right. You did. We I, I demanding perfection of movement is an actual absolutely crucial point. Yeah, you know, we just had we had a guy um, stop by the gym recently, and you know, we were just reiterating to him because his training background wasn't unfortunately the standard that he was held to was uh, um, you know fastest time or most reps, and unfortunately, um, you know, we had just well, fortunately for him, we we just kind of said well. You know, we, you're starting from a clean slate now. You've got to you've got to look at your training differently. The standard that you live by and you die by is perfection of movement, um, and that's 
that's across the board. Um, you know, ultimately, that's what's going to build the foundation for doing things like developing speed, creating variation, etc. So you're absolutely right. He's ultimately hit his tipping point. You know, and I guess for any early anyone who's listening who's early in their training life cycle who's like, well, I can always squeak out 10 more pounds if I just shoot my hips back and good morning my squat up. Well, what, that's kind of where this guy comes from. He was self-taught. Uh, no He's a boxer. Coaching was a boxer and uh, gr great guy. One of our one of our athletes, and it's just like, well, you know, it's unfortunate that you didn't have a coach that intervened and said, hey, it's not about the numbers, my man. It's about you know, it's about the perfect execution because then that's a scalable movement pattern. If you have the correct mechanics, we're not going to ever have to reset you. Uh, and you know, he was a little disheartened that he's like, so wait, I have to lower all the weights and. Uh, start over, and I was like, yeah, but, you know, it's a long road. We have your, your young dude. you got decades left of training. Just uh, let's get that pattern greased up and, and then start loading some weight on there. I I'm, I'm never cease to be amazed by the number of people that come to me that from resistance training who are injured, uh, low yeah. back pain. And you, you say I've been training since I was about eight, <laughs> which means that's like 44 years now. I can't say I've ever injured myself training, and you should never do that. And mm -hmm. you know, it, it's just mind blowing. So you know, it, if that is the case, you're really doing something wrong. It, right. It's it's amazing how pervasive that problem is. Yeah, you know, and one thing we say all the time um, is we just try to. Remind people the training is training. The test is when you're on field. Um, and so if you're, like you said, if you're injuring yourself in your training, uh, your focus is not in the right area, you know? It's all about, you know, how much weight I can load on there. No, first and foremost, it's good, proper, posteriorly loaded biomechanics. You're not going to hurt yourself that way training. Yeah, I wish I could weirdly force everyone I know to listen to this podcast, like mm -hmm. sort of like put it on loudspeaker, like communist style or like... Like in reverse though, so like subconsciously. Subconsciously, advanced. yeah. It's just like on a record. <laughs> like that Simpsons episode. Is yeah. everything yeah. a Simpsons just, episode? Just don't, just don't show them my bod pod picture. They, they, they'll, the mind will shut down immediately from there. Yeah, exactly. Or, or they'll be into it. Listen. Yeah, yeah. As you can tell, I am kind of an intense dude. <laughs> you know, sex sells, and uh, we're gonna do what we have to do. Because from what I can see, you're shirtless in that picture. So. <laughs> uh, when I Doc, Doc, we always ask uh, our guests if, uh, especially with your experience, we're curious. Do you have a definition for athleticism? That that is a good question. I developed <laughs> that for a paper about 20 years ago. And you know, I think it came up with it came out way too long, but the idea was optimal performance in all planes of motion. I mean that that's athleticism. Yeah, yeah, that 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 pretty much reflects kind of where we're headed. But yeah, you kind of everyone sort of is like a little bit stopping their tracks, and I think mm -hmm. it because it's because. You know athleticism when you see it, and then when you yeah. go to write it down on paper, it's it encompasses so many things that it's hard to be precise. Yeah, when I, I wrote it for a, a medical journal, and I I think it was like uh, a paragraph long, like a hundred words or something. Yeah. And I looked and I published it, and I thought, what an idiot, man! I mean, who's gonna, who's gonna <laughs> listen to that? But if I distilled it down, that would be it. 
Would you mind? Would you mind sharing that with us as well? I'd be interested to dive into that. Um, sure. If you yeah. Dig it out of the archives. Yeah, it's pretty old, but I, I can I can track down. I back in those days, I'm not. They, it may not be an actual PDF. It may be a scan from some library. But yeah, I can I can find that. Yeah, and we we oh, know you you've got people working for you, so just get one of your interns. Yeah, it, it, yeah, those are called those are called PhD students. <laughs> Tim, if it makes you feel any better, our definition of athleticism is written on a bar napkin. Yeah, <laughs> this, this is good. Working definition. Yeah, this is good. It's a working definition. Right, and and yeah, uh, to kind of to kind of close things, um, you know, first and foremost, I I want to ask if there's anything that you want to refer people to to get to know um, you or anything that you're an advocate of or anything that you feel would help kind of promote that fundraising um, that goes towards the study of yeah. ACL prevention or anything like that. So, so I'd say they can e either Google my name or if they go to the sports medicine websites at either Ohio State University, Cincinnati Children's Hospital, or Mayo Clinic, any of those places I've contributed to and they all have they all have good information on ACL prevention on those sites. Great, great. And um, we are going to, I mean, I'm going to have that in the, the show notes, but gosh, we are going to have you back on the show for sure. So don't sure. don't think that you can just somehow not come on the show a second time. Um, no, no problem. Tim, I definitely, I'd like to connect when you're in D.C. and kind of show you and uh, give you a visual of all the movements we're talking about and kind of get your take. Yeah, that sounds good. You know, normally my study sections, all my, well, not all of them, but most of them, ACI, NIH study sections, I have one coming up in June. They're usually in D.C. in June. They do the, they usually do the off ones out in San Diego in like February. My cycles are, the, the main review panels are February, June, and, um, and October. Um, this one coming up, though, is in Chicago, actually, in June. But I'll probably have, I, I'm, I'll be in DC within the next several months, and I'll I'll definitely uh, connect with you, Tex. Excellent. And then finally, we're not all Poindexters here. We were we are curious. We ask all the guests, what do you like to listen to uh, when and if you find it's time to train yourself? The Doors. I'm a huge Doors fan. Oh, man. great! I tell you, I can I can karaoke. I can actually channel Jim Morrison. That is I, fantastic. I, I love Roadhouse Blues. Uh, oh yeah. Did Jim Jim Morrison died of an ACL injury? Yeah. <laughs> no, I I think it was a little higher up was his problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he had a little too much of something. <laughs> Anything else you listen to? So the Doors, we got it. Cool. Uh, well, I'm I'm a big uh, country rock fan. I I love bands like uh, oh the Almond Brothers. Um, you know anything that so that has country. a lot of a, a real country has a lot of soul to it. I'm a I'm a big Willie and Waylon fan, and uh, but I I do like um, uh, the country rock. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for sharing that with us, and thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. This was sure. really, really great for all of us. I mean, I, I think when this when this goes live, I'm gonna make sure it's in the ears of all of our, you know, all of our members. Required listening. Yeah, required thanks. listening. Thanks, before. thanks, Callie. I appreciate it, and and you guys are great. It was it was really fun. Luke and Texas. It was uh, it was good time. to empower your performance. Having gotten enough of this fire hose of ACL information? 
do as the doc says and research his findings by going to the sports medicine section of the Ohio State University, Cincinnati Children's Hospital, or Mayo Clinic websites. How amazing is episode 105 going to be with the hybrid athletics and CrossFit Strongman's own Rob Orlando? I don't know that we have the data to be able to answer that question. Oh, I got your data right here. Next week on Power Athlete Radio. Bye!